I invite you to take your copy of Scripture and turn to Romans, Romans chapter 7. And uh, we are currently in a series in Romans chapter 6 through 8. And Lord willing, we will finish our study of Romans chapter 7 this morning. So this morning we're going to be looking at verses 13 through 25, so the second half of Romans chapter 7. And uh, we will conclude our study in this chapter. So I'm going to begin reading for us in verse 1, and uh, I'll read through the chapter in its entirety, and then we will consider the verses that we'll be looking at uh, this morning. If you're using one of the Bibles that we provide for you, uh, you'll find our passage on page 943 and 944. Romans chapter 7, and I'll begin reading for us in verse 1. Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives? For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness, for apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good." Verse 13, did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am under the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, It is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God, in my inner being. 
But I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Amen. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you for bringing us safely here this morning. And uh, Lord, we thank you for this opportunity to turn to your word. Lord, we pray now that you would speak to us through your word. We pray, Father, that you would lead us and guide us into all truth as we consider your word. And we pray, Lord, that we would know something more of the grace and the power of Christ in our lives as a result of considering this passage here in Romans chapter 7. And it's through Jesus Christ our Lord we pray. Amen. Well, in Romans chapter 7, Paul is addressing the role of the law in the Christian's life. And in our studies in Romans chapter 7, I have repeatedly attempted to make the point that all of us, whether we're a Christian or whether we're not yet a Christian, all of us must reckon with God's law. We may not think of it as God's law, but all of us have to reckon with God's law. In fact, even those who deny God's law must reckon with His law. For example, famous atheists like Bertrand Russell or Richard Dawkins, they acknowledge that since they deny the existence of God, they do not have any final or ultimate standard upon which to base morality. So I grant them that they, um, I commend them for acknowledging that, but no one can live this out consistently. Bertrand Russell is dead, so we could take Richard Dawkins as an example. If someone were to lie to Dawkins, or if someone were to clear out his bank account without him knowing it, or if someone were to violently attack one of his children, Dawkins would not respond by saying, well, uh, to each his own. God doesn't exist, and therefore there's no such thing as objective morality. And who am I to impose my personal morality on those who harm me? Now that's absurd, isn't it? No, of course he would object. And he would object by appealing to a standard of right and wrong, a standard of right and wrong that exists outside of himself. You see, the very worldview that he proposes, he can't live out consistently. It's absurd, this notion that there is no such thing as law or morality, because innately we know that the universe is governed, the universe contains a moral code. And we know this because God, who is eternal, who is a moral being, created the universe and implanted this moral code in His creation. We know this moral code because, in addition, we are created in the image of God. And this moral code bears witness to our conscience moment by moment. And in fact, we experience the consequences of either honoring or dishonoring this moral code on a daily basis. So in this way, all of us, Christians and non-Christians, must reckon with God's moral law. 
Now, Paul in Romans 7 is particularly addressing how should Christians relate to God's law. And as we consider what Paul has to say to us here in these verses, I want us to look at our text in four parts. First of all, we will see in our passage a question. Secondly, an answer. Third, evidence. And then fourth, three applications. So a question, an answer, evidence, and then three applications. Now, as we look at our text, I'll go ahead and tell you kind of the main point that Paul is driving at, the main idea of these verses. And the main point that I want us to see in our text is that sin uses God's law to produce death in us. The law cannot rescue us from this death, but Jesus will. Let me state that again. Sin uses God's law to produce death in us. The law cannot rescue us from this death, but Jesus will. Now, initially, that might not resonate with you, or maybe, maybe it doesn't even make a whole lot of sense to you at this point, but I believe that as we progress in our text, you will see Paul's argument here, and you'll see the significance of this argument. And there's a lesson for us to be learned here as well. At, at Crawford, we work through books of the Bible. We work through uh, passages of Scripture, verse by verse, in the Bible. And oftentimes, we come to a section in Scripture that may be particularly difficult or immediately it doesn't seem relevant to our lives, but we believe that if we devote ourselves to understanding the text, to working through it, to meditating on it, reflecting on it, then we will experience the promise of the Bible, that all Scripture is profitable so that the man of God may be equipped for every good work. And so there are, and I believe you'll see this this morning, this is kind of a challenging passage, but there are good things for us in this text that will benefit us greatly if we come to understand them. So first, question. Question. Look there in verse 13 of our text. Uh, Chapter 7, verse 13. Paul says, Did that which is good produce death in me? Now, that which is good that Paul is referring to here obviously refers to the law because if you look back at verse 12, you will see there in the previous verse, Paul stated, so the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. And then he asked the question, did that which is good, referring to verse 12 in the law, produce death in me? So this is the question that Paul poses in verse 13, and therefore, as he sets out this answer in the rest of the chapter, chapter 7, this is Paul's main concern in this section. Did the law produce death in me? Now, why is Paul asking this question? I don't imagine that most of you woke up this morning and were thinking to yourself, does the law produce death in me? And you were really you know, wrestling with that question this morning. So why does Paul ask this question? Well, this question is vitally important because the answer to this question will help us better understand how God saves us and how God sanctifies us. And he answer, he's asked this question because of the, the flow of his argument through Romans chapter 7. And so we need to follow his argument. We need to follow his line of thinking to understand why he asked this question. So Paul's Jewish opponents, who he has in mind here as he's writing this letter to the church in Rome, they believe that God saves us and that God makes us holy through the law. And it's worth noting, you might think, well, is, 
You know, is that, was that just something that people believed back then? Well, no. It's worth noting that basically every other religious system in the world teaches this as well. There's various variations of it, but it's essentially what every other world religion teaches. That God has a moral code, He has a moral law, and this moral code, this moral law is the key to experiencing salvation, to experiencing God's favor, to growing into the person that God intends for us to be. But in Romans, Paul is declaring the unique message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That the law, in fact, is not the key to us experiencing God's salvation. It's not the key to us experiencing sanctification, becoming more and more like Christ or growing in holiness. Rather, God's salvation and redemption and grace comes to us not by our works and what we're able to achieve, but by God's grace through trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. By being united to Him in faith, by believing in His death and resurrection and receiving His Holy Spirit. So as Paul's been making this argument through Romans, Paul's opponents say, well, if the law does not save us, and if the law does not sanctify us, then what is the purpose of the law? Are you saying then, Paul, that the law is sin? And actually, we saw a few weeks ago that Paul addressed that question. In chapter 7, you can see it there in chapter 7, verse 7, Paul raises this question. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? Now notice, now this is going to get us to where we're at this morning, but notice Paul's answer to that question in verses 9 through 11. Paul says in verses 9 through 11 of chapter 7, I was once alive apart from the law, but the commandment came, sin came alive, notice, and I died. Verse 10, the very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. Verse 11, for sin seizing an opportunity through the commandment deceived me and through it killed me. So do you see how now Paul anticipates the rebuttal of his opponents? He said that through the commandment, through the law, I died. So now Paul anticipates his opponent saying, well, Paul, are you saying that the law is death? That's the question. If the law can't save me, if the law can't sanctify me, and I'm a sinner who is spiritually dead, does that mean that the law is death? So that's the question. First point. Second point, the answer. Look there in verse 13. And you notice the answer. The immediate answer is, by no means. And then Paul goes on to elaborate in verse 13. It was sin producing death in me through what is good, that is through the law, in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. So was it the law that brought death to Paul? He says, no, it was. What, what was it that brought death to Paul? Sin. And how did it bring death to Paul? Notice there, producing death in me through the commandment. Do you remember last week when we were talking about Adam and Eve and in the garden we were considering Romans chapter 7 and Paul makes reference to this? 
And in the garden, Adam and Eve, they are given a commandment in Genesis chapter 3, verse 3. You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. And implicit in that commandment is a promise. If you don't eat of the tree, you will live. You can eat of all the trees of the garden, but there's this one tree, and if you don't eat of that tree, you will live. You will live forever in perfect fellowship and communion with God. So, that law came with a promise. The commandment came with a promise. But it produced death in me because sin seized the commandment and it deceived me. Sin seized the commandment and said to me, it deceived me, it deceived Adam and Eve. God gave you the commandment because He's holding out on you. God gave you this commandment because He doesn't want what's best for you. You can't trust God. You can't trust His commandments. You can't trust His promises. And sin deceived me. Using the commandment deceived me. And sin brought through the commandment death. Now, why is it that sin is able to make use of the commandment to produce death in us? Look at verse 13. In order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. Now, I'm, I'm not a medical doctor, but whenever, and I might get some of this wrong, but I think this is the basic idea. Whenever you have a certain type of bacteria or disease in your bloodstream or in a particular organ maybe, sometimes a doctor will have you ingest a substance or they might inject you with a substance that works like a contrast that reveals the infection. And I think that's what Paul is saying here in terms of the law. At least that's that's how the law works. It works like that contrast The law reveals sin and rebellion in our bloodstream that's already there. It doesn't create it, it reveals it. And in fact, it does such a good job, it's such a good, effective contrast that when applied correctly, it reveals, as Paul says here, that our sin is sinful beyond measure. In other words, it reveals that we don't just have like a small spot of sin in one location. But it reveals that we are eaten up with this infection. We're eaten up with this cancer called sin and it is deadly. So what Paul is saying here is that the law is not the contaminating deadly agent. The law reveals the contaminating deadly agent, which is sin. And that is what brings death to me and to you. So the question, the answer, third, the evidence. Now look there, this is found in verses 14 to 20. Verses 14 to 20. So what evidence does Paul have to support his position that sin rather than the law, is the cause for spiritual and physical death. Now, Paul could appeal to the Old Testament Scriptures. And he's done that before, in particular, making a similar argument in Romans chapter 5. He appealed to the Old Testament Scriptures. But here, in Romans 7, 
At this point in the letter, Paul appeals to his own personal experience as proof that the cause of death is not the law, or even in one sense himself, but sin, indwelling sin. Now, if you're familiar at all with Romans chapter 7, this section is the most well-known, the most memorable section of Romans chapter 7, in particular here where Paul is going back and forth. You know, I, I do what I don't want to do and what I want to do, I don't do, and so forth, back and forth and back and forth. And this also is the most debated section in Romans chapter 7, and we'll return to that in just a few moments. But as we look at this section, I, w- I want to point out something, first of all, want something that's really fascinating Paul here actually shares his struggle with sin in two parallel accounts that follow one another. So first of all, in verses 14 to 17, he shares his own personal struggle and battle with sin. And then in verses 18 to 20, he shares his struggle and battle with sin, and the two are parallel to one another. He's saying almost the exact same thing in the second account. So, so let me try to show you this, and you might have to use your fingers as you follow along in the text, okay? So look there in verse 14. This is the first account. Paul says, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh sold under sin. Now, keep your finger there. Go down to verse 18. This is the second account. For I know that nothing dwells in me that is in my flesh. He's saying the same thing. Look at verse 15. For I do not understand my own actions. Go to the second part of verse 18. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. Now look at the second part of verse 15. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. And then look at verse 19. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Look then back to the first account at verse 16. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good, so now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. Look at the conclusion of the second account in verse 20. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So it's, it's, it's almost exactly parallel. Paul shares his struggle his own personal experience and struggle with sin in 14 to 17, and then repeats it in verses 18 to 20 with almost the exact same words. And notice Paul's argument on both occasions. Paul's argument is that the law is not the problem. The law is spiritual. The law is good, he says. The problem is me. I am of the flesh. I don't even understand my own actions. Can you sympathize with Paul on that? More precisely, Paul says... The problem is not even me, but the problem is sin that dwells within me. Now, isn't that interesting? It seems curious, doesn't it? Immediately we might think, is Paul here shirking personal responsibility? It's not me, but it's sin that dwells within me. Well, I think we have to say immediately that Paul is not trying to avoid personal responsibility. In fact, One of the main points that Paul is trying to make in his letter to the Romans is that we are all accountable to God. In fact, in Romans chapter 3, verse 19, Paul says, 
Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. So everyone's accountable to God. You, me, Paul, everyone. No exceptions. So Paul is not one to deny personal responsibility for sin. Rather, I believe what Paul is getting at here is that Paul so identifies with the new person that he is in Christ, that he's no longer spiritually dead, but spiritually alive, that he's no longer a slave of sin, but a slave to righteousness, that he is no longer um, a slave to Satan, but a slave to God. He so identifies with the new person that he is in Christ that he makes a distinction here between who he is in Christ and his propensity to sin. Who he is in Christ is that he says here in the text, he agrees with the law. He delights to do what is right. But there is this ongoing struggle and battle with sin. However, now that he is in Christ, his love for God's law, his desire to do what is right, is fundamentally what defines him, not his propensity to sin. In this sense, Paul can say, It is no longer I who do it. That is, it's not the I who is united to Christ by faith. It's not the I who has been raised from death to life. It's not the I who has become a slave of righteousness. But still sin dwells within me. That's the tension. Now as I mentioned last week, this is the most debated section of Romans chapter 7. And the debate here is whether in these verses Paul is speaking of himself as a non-Christian. So he's reflecting back. Before he became a Christian, he's talking about this battle, this struggle with sin. Or he's describing himself as a Christian who is currently battling and struggling with the flesh. Now much could be said about this, but I'm I'm just going to try to summarize what I think are kind of three essential factors that we should consider in in answering this question whether Paul is a Christian or a non-Christian in these verses. Now, the first factor I think that we should consider here is the tense of the verbs, the tense of the verbs. Now, last week I pointed this out, that Paul changes the verb tenses in this section. So, in verses 7 through 12, which we looked at a couple of weeks ago, Paul speaks in the past tense which seems to indicate that Paul is speaking of himself in the past before he became a Christian. But then you'll notice in verses 14 to 20, Paul shifts to the present tense. And we won't go through it now, but you can look there, and all the verbs now are in the present tense. I do presently what I don't want to do. The things I don't want to do presently, I do presently. He shifts to the present tense which seems to indicate that he's speaking of himself in the present as he's writing the letter as a Christian. Now, some object and point out that the present tense in Greek does not always indicate present time. And that is true. But that must be established by the context. And the most natural reading of this text indicates that Paul is speaking of himself in the present. Given the context, I think it's very difficult to suggest that Paul intends for these present tense verbs to be read any other way. And again, we could say a lot more about that, but I think it's a very difficult argument to make. 
So the tense of the verbs would indicate that Paul is speaking of himself presently as a Christian. A second factor that we have to consider here is the description of the struggle. The description of the struggle. Now, I think that this is the best argument for those who say that Romans 7 is a description of Paul before he became a Christian. It doesn't persuade me. I'm not convinced by it. But I think for those who say that Paul is describing himself here before he became a Christian, this is the best argument they have. So they would point to Romans chapter 6, so the chapter before this, where Paul declares some six times that in Christ we are free from sin. So for example, in chapter 6 verse 14, Paul says, For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law but under grace. And then they would say, now if that's true, then how does Paul turn around in Romans chapter 7 and say, for we know that the law is spiritual, but I'm of the flesh sold under sin. Or in verse 18 of chapter 7, for I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. See, so they would say he must be speaking of himself prior to him being a Christian. It is true in Romans chapter 7 that Paul says, I am of the flesh, but that is not the only thing that Paul says of himself. In fact, Paul is very intentional in Romans chapter 7 to point out that he is more than just the flesh. Did you see that in verse 17? For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, he's making a distinction, that is in my flesh. He's saying there's more to me now than just my flesh. And what is the more? Well, Paul tells us all through this section in Romans chapter 7, verse 16, I agree with the law that is good. Verse 18, I have the desire to do what is right. Verse 22, I delight in the law of God in my inner being. Verse 25, I myself serve the law of God with my mind. You see, all of these things indicate that Paul is more than just the flesh. He is a new person. He's been given the Spirit. He's been given a new heart. He actually has the law of God written on his heart so that he delights in it. He wants to do what is right. All this would indicate that Paul is, in fact, a Christian here. But there is this tension, right? Because notice in in chapter 7, verse 5, he can say he's he's no longer in the flesh. We are no longer in the flesh because we are in Christ. But in chapter 7, verse 14, he can say, I am of the flesh. That's the tension. That's the battle. That's the struggle. There's something of the flesh still within me. Even though it doesn't dominate over my life so that I'm in it. Another way we could say this is we are no longer under dominion of sin, but we are still sinful. And Paul, this this, this tension is found all throughout this section in Romans chapter 6 through 8. And it's not just in Romans 7. It's actually in Romans 6 too. Because in Romans 6, I just read it for you a few moments ago, Paul can say in Romans chapter 6, verse 14, sin will have no dominion over you. And in verse 12, he says, let not sin reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do you see that? Sin will have no dominion over you. Therefore, don't let it reign. Well, Paul, you just said it would have no dominion over me. Exactly. So don't let it reign. It's still there. It's still present at some level. But the power's been broken. You can succumb to it at times, 
but the power's been broken. Therefore, subdue it, kill it, don't let it reign. That's the tension. Paul can say, We are not in the flesh, but we still do fleshly things. Sin no longer has dominion over us, but we can still fall prey to sin, so we must not let it reign. So that's the second factor. The first factor in discerning here whether Paul is a Christian or non-Christian in this text is the tense of the verbs. Secondly is the description of the struggle and the way he describes the struggle. Both these things are true. The third factor I think that we need to consider here in whether Paul is a Christian or a non-Christian in these verses is the experience of Christians. The experience of Christians. Most, if not all, Christians identify with this experience. I mean, I've I've just witnessed it over and over and over again in my life as different people read, different Christians that I know read this passage or I talk to different Christians about this passage. Invariably, they respond, yes, I know what that's like. Paul's describing me. So Paul's argument here, we're still, this is still the third point under evidence, right? We're looking at the evidence here of Paul's personal struggle in verses 14 through 20. And we've determined here that he is a Christian and he's offering evidence of his own personal struggle. And so here's Paul's argument. He begins with the question, does the law produce death? His answer is, no, it's not the law that produces death, it's sin. And what's his evidence? His own personal struggle with sin. Paul is essentially saying this, listen, I'm born again. I agree with the law that it's spiritual and that it's good. I love the law, but I'm still unable to fully follow the law as I desire. Not because the law is evil. I I said it's good. It's spiritual. Not because the law is death, but because of indwelling sin in me. Now, Three applications is our fourth point. So question, answer, the evidence, and then three applications. This is found in verses 21 to 24. Now in verses 21 to 24, what you'll see is that there are two inferences or conclusions that Paul draws from reflecting on this personal struggle in his life. And those two conclusions we are marked off by the word so could be translated in your translation then or therefore in the ESV which I'm reading for it from is translated so and then in the middle of those two conclusions is an interruption kind of a visceral cry of Paul's redeemed heart and so these two inferences these two conclusions in this interruption form the three application points that flow from Paul's argument so the first The first application is this, a law of spiritual conflict is at work in our Christian life. A law of spiritual conflict is at work in our Christian life. This is found in verses 21 to 23. Look there in verse 21. So, or therefore, he's drawing a conclusion now, I find it to be a law or a principle that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law, another principle, waging war against the law of my mind. And when Paul says the law of his mind here, there's good reason to believe that Paul is actually, the law of his mind is parallel to the law of God. 
Because Paul is a Psalm 1 kind of man. Blessed is the man who delights in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. Paul's got the, the word of God, the law of God in his mind. But there's another law waging war against the law of his mind. Which is set on the word of God and the law of God. And it makes me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. So this is the spiritual conflict. This is the principle that Paul is speaking of here. It's the law of sin waging war against the law of God or the law of my mind. I think Paul would say to us that that, that he can describe it, but he can't finally escape it in this life. As James Boyce, Christian pastor, declares, quote, when God calls us to be Christian people, He calls us to a lifetime of struggle against sin, end of quote. And if you're a Christian this morning, you know that when you trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, it's not that your battle of sin ceases. In many ways, it just begins. And again, we need to be aware of this balance. We need to have this balance in our own Christian lives. You know, for a number of weeks, we worked through Romans chapter 6, where Paul is celebrating the victory that we have through faith in Jesus. And if, if you were all Romans 6, and that's kind of all you knew about the Christian life, and that's all you focused on was Romans chapter 6, I'm not saying you should draw this conclusion, but you might draw the conclusion that the Christian life is nothing but victory. And you might be inclined to adopt certain unbiblical ideas about the Christian life, like the idea that we can reach a state of sinless perfection. That in this life we can attain to a position where we no longer sin. Which obviously leads to pride or arrogance on the one hand. I'm, I no longer sin. Or can lead to deep, deep discouragement. Knowing or assuming that there's this standard that I can attain where I will never sin, but I can't get there. I can't ever, ever get there. Or, if you're one who doesn't focus so much on Romans 6, but focuses all on Romans 7. Again, I'm not saying you should draw this conclusion, but you might adopt other unbiblical ideas about the Christian life. Like, oh, I'm just such a wretch. I can't do anything good. I can't please God. I can't make any progress in the Christian life. And some people actually approach the Christian life in that way. And that's also dangerous. If that's your perspective on the Christian life, you will have a very difficult time experiencing victory over sin. Because that, in fact, is unbelief. And if your unbelief leads you to be passive towards your sin or to engage in your, the battle with sin without any hope or prospect of victory or progress. Listen, my friend, sin will not go easy on you. Sin will not have mercy. Sin may very well ruin your life, destroy your ministry. It may very well wreck your faith. Because you refuse to live by faith in union with Christ and to embrace the victory that God offers you in Jesus. And so we need, this, we need this balance in terms of how we understand the Christian life because the Christian life, in the Christian life, there is a real battle with sin, an ongoing conflict with sin, and there is real victory in Jesus. I delight in the law of God in my mind. That's victory. Previously, I wouldn't have done that. 
I delight in it. I want to do it. And there is this other law of sin that wages war against my soul. That's the battle. Second application is this. The Lord Jesus will finally save us from this spiritual conflict. The Lord Jesus will finally save us from this spiritual conflict. Now, this is the interruption in the argument. You see it there in verse 24, and it seems what we have here is kind of a personal outburst or a spontaneous interruption in Paul's argument. Paul is reflecting on this spiritual conflict in his life, and he has this visceral reaction. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And then you see the answer, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, we're going to return to this passage on Easter Sunday, I believe, Uh, but I want you to notice here just briefly, notice that what Paul says here in verse 24 is directly related to the original question that he asked back in verse 13. So you remember the question he begins with, did the law bring death to me? The answer is no. It was sin that used the law that aroused uh, sin within me and and, and I failed to keep the law, and that's what resulted in death was my sin. And now who will save me from, Paul is asking in verse 24, he's, he's, he's thinking along these same themes, does the law bring death? Who will save me from this body of death? It's not the law, right? Who is it? The Lord Jesus, who died for my sins, who was raised from the dead. And it is the Lord Jesus and only the Lord Jesus who can save us from our sins. And so let me just say this morning as well, especially if you're not a Christian this morning, let me say this, let me just say very clearly that based on the words of the Apostle Paul this morning, let me admonish you to trust in the Lord Jesus and He will save you. And what Paul is teaching us in this letter to the Romans is that He will save us from the penalty of sin. That is from the guilt, from the condemnation of sin, so that we can be forgiven. He will save us from the power of sin, so that you can have victory over your own moral deficiencies and sin. You can make real progress in becoming more and more like Christ. And, as Paul is indicating in this verse, He will ultimately, on the day of redemption, save us from the presence of sin, in which sin altogether will be eradicated. And we will be given new bodies and we will be redeemed and saved to sin no more. It is the Lord Jesus who will finally save us from this spiritual conflict. Not ourselves, not the law, but the Lord Jesus. The third application is this in verse 25. This spiritual conflict continues in this life. This spiritual conflict continues in this life. So, He draws one conclusion, then there's kind of this visceral interruption, and now Paul, in verse 25, returns to his primary argument. And hear what he says. He says, so then, or therefore, he's coming to another conclusion, so then, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Now, let me just say, this is another, I think, very compelling reason to believe that Paul is speaking of himself as a Christian in these verses. You see, those who say that Paul is speaking of himself prior to being a Christian in verses 14 through 20, they would say 
that see, this is the conclusion of Paul's wrestling with himself before he became a Christian. You know, I'm sinning and I don't want to sin. He's not a Christian yet. But then in verse 24, this is Paul's conversion experience. Who will save me? And then he trusts in Christ. But if verse 24 is intended to resolve the conflict of verses 14 to 20, then why in verse 25 does Paul describe the same experience? He describes the same conflict. Do you see that? So there's this conflict going on. Paul says, who will rescue me? He says, the Lord Jesus will rescue me. And then right after that, he describes the same conflict. In other words, once we're saved, the conflict continues. As I said earlier, in many ways it just begins. So Paul is saying here, yes, Jesus has saved me, and Jesus will finally save me on the day of redemption. But in the meantime, the conflict continues. The battle rages on. I myself serve the law of God with my mind. But with my flesh, I saw serve the law of sin. And those things are happening simultaneously. We've all felt this way as Christians. And in one sense, I think it's true that as we mature, both the victory and the struggle of the Christian life intensify. The victory intensifies because we grow more and more in Christ's likeness and by the grace of God we increasingly experience victory over sin. And the struggle intensifies because as we go along in our Christian lives we face new temptations. We become more aware of our indwelling sin. We often encounter more spiritual warfare and endure more difficult trials and losses as we get older in life. Think of a man like Job. The Bible describes Job as a righteous man. But his growth in righteousness did not preclude him from the trials and the difficulties and the temptations of life. In fact, he suffered the terrible loss of his wealth, of his family, of his health. He faced a persistent temptation to doubt the goodness of God, to reject God and to curse God. I mean, we read Job, and in many ways we come face to face with the conflict, the battle, the struggle that Paul is describing here. And of course, Job lost some of those battles, didn't he? If you read the book of Job, you'll remember at the end of the book of Job, Job actually has to repent before the Lord. But in the end, Job overcomes. He is victorious. And through the struggle, he grows in righteousness and he experiences victory. And this, my friends, is in fact how we triumph as Christians. We triumph not in the absence of conflict and struggle, but we triumph through the conflict and the struggle. In fact, if there's no struggle, that's an indication that there's no life, right? I mean, that's in many ways the definition of death. If there's no struggle, if there's no movement, that's death. If there's no struggle, that's an indication that one has already surrendered themselves to the flesh. They've surrendered themselves to greed and lust and bitterness and cynicism and unbelief. They've given up. But for a Christian, the struggle is evidence of life. It's evidence of resurrection life. 
of the life of Christ that will ultimately overcome. And on this point, and this is the last thing I'll say, this idea of the, the struggle continuing in Paul's life is so immensely encouraging as we think about how Romans chapter 7 has so encouraged Christians and encouraged the, the Christian church throughout the centuries. I mean, isn't it something to consider that Romans chapter 7 is not just written by a Christian, it's not just written by a mature Christian, Romans chapter 7 is written by an apostle. The things I want to do, I don't do, and the things I don't want to do, I do, and there's this struggle taking place within me. And listen, my friends, in the end, this is the only kind of man or woman who can help fellow sinners. It's only those who have tasted something of the bitterness of sin. It's only those who have waged battle against their own flesh who can in the end help fellow sinners. I mean, if we were unable to say, I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. If we couldn't say that, we would be unbearably self-righteous. We would be unable to sympathize with other sinners. But on the other hand, it is also true. The person who wallows in that sin is not a whole lot of help either. The one who surrenders, the one who loses hope, the one who quits fighting, the one who wallows in the self-pity and never advances forward for the sake of righteousness, that's not much help either. The man or the woman who can be a powerful instrument in the hand of God is the man or the woman who can say, wretched man that I am. There's the struggle. Who will save me from this body of death? There's the humility. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. There's the hope. There's the faith. There's the victory. That man or woman will be a powerful instrument in the hand of God. And that's why Romans chapter 7 has encouraged and strengthened Christians for centuries. So my friends, the conflict continues, but in Christ, by the grace of God, we will know ultimate victory. And by the grace of God, part of that victory is that we will be an immense help to other fellow sinners. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you, Lord, for Romans chapter 7. Lord, we pray now that you would give us understanding in these things. We pray that you would give us wisdom in knowing how to apply them to our lives. We pray, Father, that you would give us victory in this struggle and in this battle, that we would know the true victory that Paul speaks of here, the true victory that is ours in Christ. And it's in his name we pray.